Hi, Steve here. Welcome to the Natural Curiosity Project. As you know, curiosity is the central theme of this program, and one of the things that sparks my own curiosity is the people that I get to meet, especially people who have a skill or an ability that I don't have. That is certainly the case with my friend Tim Washer, my guest in this episode. Tim and I met because we both have backgrounds in technology and have spent a lot of years in the tech industry. He's worked at Xerox, IBM, and Cisco, among others, and he knows the technologies really well. He can talk about IoT, quantum computing, artificial intelligence, or the history of telephony with ease. But he's also been a comedy writer for David Letterman and John Oliver and Saturday Night Live. Now, just stop and ponder that for a minute. And I thought I was professionally schizophrenic. I've seen Tim in action many, many times, and we've worked on a few projects together. I've seen him deliver powerful keynotes to huge audiences. I've seen him serve as the host of global marketing conferences, and I've watched in awe as he delivered important messaging to boardrooms full of people who frankly took themselves far too seriously. He's my friend, and he's one of the best presenters I've ever heard. Through a combination of passion and humor and vulnerability and an acute understanding of the corporate domain, he makes his audience think differently, often in profound ways. I asked Tim to join me on the podcast to talk about a topic that he's got a lot of passion about, the role of humor in the workplace. Okay, so you and I met, Tim, when you worked at Cisco, and before that you worked at IBM, right? and, and you worked in mesmerizing areas like artificial intelligence and Internet of Things and other unpronounceable just fascinating stuff. Fascinating yeah. stuff, right? And then, of course, in your copious spare time, and here's where we're going to get everybody's attention. You worked on Saturday Night Live. You worked at Conan. You worked for John Oliver. How did this happen? I'm from Texas. I moved up to New York after business school to work as an analyst, and I was working in Manhattan and having a good time, but not really fulfilled. I mean, I, I enjoyed my job enough and and then there was a moment where I just realized there was, I had this calling. I was supposed to work in comedy and uh, that scared the heck out of me. It, it just it absolutely scared the heck out of me, but I knew it was an obligation. So I, I started just talking to, I didn't know how to start. I just talked to some friends and a buddy of mine said, Oh, you need to go, you need to go to the upright citizens brigade and take an improv class there. So I did. And there was a young woman there who's my instructor, Amy Poehler. And this is like two years before she got onto SNL. And I just really enjoyed, took a few classes with her and really enjoyed it and ended up getting to write for her on a weekend update and act on there in some sketches and things like that. And that, that's how the comedy came about. And then how the technology came about is I wasn't able to uh, make a living in comedy. You know, I was like, if you write, if you get a, a a monologue joke on David Letterman that pays 75 bucks. Okay. And that, if you're not a staff writer, like, like me, it's, it's hard to get, you know, the staff writers don't want to put the freelancers on, you know, they want to get the jokes. So it, it, you know, those checks are, it doesn't pay much. And then my daughter, my daughter, Katie was born and I was married at the time. My wife said, look, you got to go get dental somehow. And so I was, I was trying to look for a job where I could use comedy writing and also MC and host. And I was trying to get into corporate events 
and that wasn't working out. And then a friend of mine told me about this job at IBM on the events team as a speechwriter. I thought it was, I thought comedy was dead, of course, going to work for IBM. I figured it was over. But the second day I was there, the head of sales for the mainframe business said, Hey, I hear you're funny. Can you write a, a joke for me for one of my presentations? And then it kind of opened the door there. You know, I, I first ran across you before we actually knew each other. And that was when I was looking for something for one of the presentations at, uh, I think it was at USC when I was teaching at USC. And I found this, this, I don't know if it's correct to call it a commercial, but this little piece you did for Cisco yeah. where you were a reporter wandering around the halls looking for this guy named John Chambers to find out what this new product was they were coming out. Of course, Chambers comes out and talks to you. And that, I mean, that was just his, and your tie got caught in the elevator door, as I recall. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. And, and Chambers was, we did a few videos, comedies with Chambers, and he was, he was really fun to work with, Re really gracious and uh, uh, very patient, which was nice you know, when you're doing a comedy. Yeah. So, I mean, let's face it, we're in a time right now where uh, comedy is in short supply. Um, you know, old friend of mine in California used to say, uh, you know, life is really serious business. You never get out alive, you know, and, and, mm. and there's a certain amount of that today, obviously, with the lockdown and everything else that's going on. And let's also face it, companies like IBM aren't known for humor. I mean, that's not where your mind goes when you think about, when you think about humor. Yet, knowing you as I do, it plays a huge role in the workplace. Let me say that a different way. It should play a huge role in the workplace. Mm -hmm. um, help me understand why humor matters in, in, in sort of the, the working environment. Well, it, it helps us. I think, I think the biggest power that humor has is, is the ability to connect, to connect and to break down walls. And part of that, it, the thing is, if you can make somebody laugh, uh, I, certainly in a business context, I think that's the probably the most intimate connection you can have with somebody at a professional level. It's a gift. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and it's also so much of that gift comes from listening and understanding the other person and knowing what's going to make them laugh and being able to come up with an idea that's going to play off of some concept that's going to connect with them so deeply that they're going to lose control of their body and laugh, you know, it, it's, it's involuntary. So that's a powerful thing. I think so often, um, you know, in a business context, in a marketing context, I like using humor because if you can make your customer laugh, if you start with their pain point, whatever they're struggling with, whatever problem they need to solve. And if you can write a comedy about that pain, and make them laugh, you, you've instantly established empathy and, and, and a deeper connection with them because they realize, okay, this guy's heard me and he understands my problem. And not only that, he's, he's spending time instead of trying to sell me something, he's trying to make me laugh. He's entertained me, but in a way that's actually meaningful because he understands my problem. So that, that's where it fits in a marketing context. I think right now it's even more important because we're all working remotely we really feel we've lost this connection because we don't see people around the office. And I think internally in organizations, it's really important to, to find ways to, to laugh about some things. You know, it's funny over the last few months, one of the topics that I've been asked to speak about, and I suspect you have as well, is the whole idea of staying human at a time when we're forced to do what you and I are doing right now, which is sort yeah. of looking at each other across a zoom call. Right. Um, and, one of the things I did when somebody asked me, what does that really mean? What does it mean to be human? I did a little research. And one of the things I concluded was that 
humans have language. I mean, we have the ability to use language to communicate, which allows us to communicate concepts and emotions, which in turn allows us to create stories, which allow us to create community. I just want to ask a, a question that we actually haven't talked about before, and that is, is, is humor a form of language? Huh. That's interesting. You know, when, when I was at IBM, I left right as we were working on IBM Watson, the supercomputer, and we developed that machine so it could, it could compete on Jeopardy, you know, and, and then after that, we were working on some different, you know, other, other, kind, of, other kind of languages that Watson could comprehend. And humor was one of the most difficult ones for Watson. You know, just the, the, the AI, the, the, the input output that goes into all that, it was just, it's tough to program a machine to figure out humor. But, but Watson's working on that. So, I, you know, that's a, actually, that's very off topic of your question. I, I just, that just came to mind, just how you program a machine to do that, you know, and everything that's going on with AI and machine learning. I, I'd say it is, I think it is a language. I think humor is a language for sure. My dad's a, a Presbyterian minister. He did a sermon once on how you know when you found the person you're supposed to marry. And there were three things. I, I forget all of them except for one. It's like, do you laugh at the same things? That's, that was it. And so there is, it, it, I, I think it's certainly a measure of a type of resonance you have with another person a type of connection that you have with that other person. Yeah, I, I think you could call it a language. I've never looked at it that way. Though. Well, I, actually, I haven't either, but I know for a fact that whenever we're going to get together or meet or chat like this, we're both really busy, so it doesn't happen very often. But when it does, I, I so look forward to it because I know you're going to make me laugh. I mean, the times yeah. that we've spent together physically because we've worked on projects, <laughs> you know, whether it was in Costa Rica or in California or wherever it may be, Vermont, looking for Nessie or whatever the, the Vermont's yes. equivalent of Nessie oh, yeah. is. <laughs> you all, you always make me laugh because you find that linkage that that you probe, which causes me to respond. And, and I just love that. I think that's so powerful. And of course, thinking about things like the Super Bowl commercials where millions of dollars are spent to make people laugh as a way to remember a product. And yet it's not done as much as it should be in the workplace. Why is that? Why, why don't companies use it more, especially today? Look, one of the, one of the points is that one of the issues is that Somebody has has tried humor. Like I've talked to a lot of clients. Say, oh yeah, we tried we tried to do a comedy video once, and it's like okay, well, tell me about the process. Yeah, we we uh, we had our you know our usual ad agency write it, and you know, or some guy in accounts payable write it, write the script. And it's like okay, you know, if you if you're gonna build a rocket, you know, you you get somebody who's qualified for the job. And so I think a lot of times people tried humor and they just didn't know how to put the right team together. You know, they, don't, they didn't know you need a comedy writer. They didn't know you also need an editor. They just think, well, an editor is an editor. You have to have an editor who understands comedic timing. So I think a lot of it is, is they've tried it before and it failed and just given up. And uh, that's a sad thing. I think the other thing now, and, and especially just with everything that's gone on last year, is everybody's become so sensitive you know, uh, it, you can't really have a conversation about too many things without becoming explosive. And I, I think people tend to think that humor is going to humor is going to lead to something explosive or offensive. A lot of people think comedy comes from offending somebody. 
they've just been at the wrong comedy clubs. You know, they've gone to some cheap comedy club or seen Carrot Top or something like that. And, and the sad thing is that humor, humor can, it can build a bridge. It can diffuse a lot of tension if it's used right. You know, if I, I like to try to always point humor at behavior that should change, you know, poke fun at behavior that should change. And uh, then it seems to be always productive. I think, you know, it's not just funny, but it makes people think differently about, okay, what, how, how can we be more inclusive or, you know, better collaborators and stuff. If you poke fun at some of the, the barriers that get in the way of that. I, I've always enjoyed comedy. And, and one of the things that I marvel at, and you, and you actually have this skill as well, as I would expect you to have, is the quickness with which people can come up with a response mm. rapidly. I, I can't tell you how many times, well, I probably have told you, but we'll be in some weird place and somebody says some offhanded comment and Tim comes back with an equally offhanded comment that puts everybody on the floor. And yes, it's funny. It's entertaining. I love it. But I always walk away thinking, how did he do that? How, I mean, what is the, and this is not a question. This is just an observation. What is the wiring in Tim's head that gives him that amazing ability to connect this to this, to this and poof, this magical, funny thing happens because, you know, what I think is he is not of this earth. (laughs) (laughs) I'll need to confirm. Yes, of course. Of course. So let me ask you this. Has COVID made it harder to use comedy? Yeah, it sure did. Listen, last year (laughs) I came back, I had a gig out in San Diego and got home March 4th and a week later, my entire year was canceled, you know, all, all, all conferences. And so, so the type of comedy I was doing at the time, and of course, TV work, late night shows, you know, everybody's doing it from their home. And so that's, that's been shut down for sure. I do think like this, the sensitivity that we talked about, uh, you know, that last year, just how sensitivity was raised and then through the election. And I think a lot of people weren't in the mood to uh, try to do something that, they felt uncomfortable with, but now, now it's, I noticed like in November, things started to change. There was a big shift. I think people were so exhausted from not laughing and from being upset. They were ready. And, and the phone really started ringing them, which was wonderful. And a lot of people, like, you know, I got an accounting firm that called and said, look, we, we want to do, we want to honor our employees and do a, we just want to have fun for our holiday meeting. We want to put on something really fun for them with a lot of laughter and a lot of uh, it, a lot of people are saying, okay, we got to figure out a way to put some laughter in, in our meeting, you know, or just a, just a video for employees and that kind of thing. So I think this year is going to be a pretty big year for, for comedy in the corporate space. Well, I mean, let's face it. I mean, accounting is certainly one of those industries that's known for humor. I mean, they, you know, (laughs) (laughs) kind of low hanging fruit there. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) That's right. Yeah, those FASB statements, you know, the comedy writes himself and those kind of things. I'm telling you, there's nothing like it. I mean, when you have that opportunity to build a joke about the left hand and the right hand side of the balance sheet, I mean, your work is done for you, buddy. That's (laughs) That's that's, that's exactly right. That that's fun. I love um, I love getting into the to the detail. So I'll learn. I'll know some of the business just from a business background from working in. Etc. But but you know, like in accounting, I'll, I'll do a lot of research. Like I have a friend who works for FASB, and I'll talk to him, and I'll talk to other people at other big fours, and just understand the business. And and again, look at what the problems are. What are the challenges that that what was especially about COVID? 
I love talking about problems that have arisen because of COVID, you know, making it more difficult to, to, to have a great experience with clients, that kind of thing. Because people, there's, there's anxiety. It's so, there's so much anxiety around that. And you can, when you lampoon those things, you really do release some of that anxiety. And, and I think talking about it and letting people understand that everybody, everybody's feeling anxious at some level, there's some comfort in that, you know, and it, and it frees. I think anytime you can kind of help people let go of shame through humor, you're, you're doing, you're doing a good service. That's a really, that's a really insightful observation. And, and I think there's a, how do I say this? I think vulnerability plays a role in this, right? I think Mm. that humor works when people allow themselves to be a little bit vulnerable. Um, they kind of open themselves up. I I don't mean because the comedian's going to make fun of them. I just mean that, right. You know, you've got to let your hair down a little bit to appreciate the power and the value of, of, of that whole medium. That's right. And the thing is that that's, you know, when I, when I was starting off in improv, uh, I was at a, a theater called Burn Manhattan. And I remember uh, the instructor telling me, listen, you need to go, your, your exercise for this week is to study people, to study their ticks that they make, you know? And so to find these different hooks you can use to get into a character, you know? So like if, if you're going to play the angry uh, dry cleaner, you know, what is it that he or she does that's going to pull you into that character right away if you start doing that, that physical movement? you really become a, uh, an astute observer of behavior and, and what maybe makes people tick and what might be behind the subtext of what they say and looking at, you know, incongruities with what they're saying and their body language, all those things. You know, it, it didn't take me too long to realize that, you know, the one thing that connects all 7 billion of us is that we're all broken somehow. You know, we've all done things that we regret. We all do things, don't have done things that we, we're carrying shame around. And if uh, whenever you can be vulnerable in your comedy and talk about your shame or, you know, talk about a, something that leads to redemption, it's so powerful for other people because they you talking specifically around about your shame frees people up from their shame, no matter what it is. You know, it could be completely different, but it's just it's, you know, I, that's something else I learned doing stand up is that the. Uh, I remember I'd write a joke and then I'd peel back, I'd, I'd generalize it a bit. You know, I'd t- so I thought, well, this will appeal to more people if it's a little more general. And that's the exact wrong thing to do. You know, the more, the more specific your story is, the more universal it is because you're getting to this, these details of truth where the emotion lives when you get into those details. And that's, I think that's so important to, and especially when you share vulnerability, like you said, you can really open up a message and and and, and be very encouraging for people. You yeah, know? you know, it's interesting what you just said also ties into another topic that you and I have spoken about a lot, which is just traditional storytelling and the fact that, you know, if you try to make your story work for everybody, it'll work for nobody. It has mm. to be much more specific and narrow if it's going to have impact. It's kind of interesting. That's right. That's, that's, that's so true. So you brought up uh, improv. I love improv. All right. I, 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 mean, I love it. The first time I saw improv was at a corporate event in California when I worked for the phone company. And again, I wondered if there are seasons on these people's planet because they were clearly not human. I mean, th- their ability to bam, 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 you know, in response to each other was absolutely extraordinary. So talk to me a little bit about that linkage between improv as a technique, I guess is the right word, 
and sort of the business world. I mean, I mean, I know that, like, for example, you spent time at Xerox. I think there was an, op- an opportunity right. there for, for a little bit of improv to come into play. That, that's right. I started there uh, in, in sales. I was in, in undergrad. I wanted to get into marketing and um, like just and I didn't want to get into sales. And like three months before I graduated, I realized, you know what, I should get into sales. And, and learn, spend time there and kind of learn how things work in a sales organization and get in front of the customer, you know, before I try to go do marketing. One of the things I, I learned pretty quickly is that uh, there was a lot of tension between the sales force and the service technicians for, for numerous different reasons. But, but what we did is we're trying to heal those relationships. Like I wrote this little parody where the salespeople we, – we, we found all the complaints that the service techs had with sales. And then we talked about our complaints as well. And then we, we got, we got some service executives to come over and play salespeople in this little video. And then, you know, we, we played service people and just, you know, just the role reversal, but it was so funny hearing those complaints coming out of the other side, you know, that argument. And, but it was, people laughed and there was a lot of healing there and it really improved the connection. And our sales went up like 30, 40% because now the service people finally trusted us, you know, and we understood the pressures they were, they were under. And uh, there was just a lot more compassion between the two groups. And, and they, were, they were telling us, they were letting us know, hey, you got an opportunity over here. This, you know, I just was out there servicing this 1090. You know, it's on its last leg. You should get out there before the competition does. So that was a powerful example. And again, that's, that's a little bit off uh, crack, but that, that's where we use some comedy to try to bring two different warring factions together. And, and it made a, an impact, a big impact on business. Well, I don't think it's off track at all. In fact, when you and I were first talking um, about this, about doing this podcast, you mentioned to me that there are some sort of principles to improv, uh, you know, support your partner, recognize order in chaos, get out of your head, follow the fear. How do these help corporate executives to lead their organizations? I mean, is there a linkage there? Oh, definitely. Definitely. And that's what, you know, you look at at, in in this trying to lead an organization in COVID, you know, and all the uncertainty is so difficult and it's becoming very taxing on CEOs. They're really having to take up uh, more communication work. They're having to do a lot more of the communications themselves internally to let, to just assure the employees that they're there. They're also needing to be more vulnerable and talk about, hey, listen, I'm, I'm anxious too. You know, I'm worried about my kids getting sick at school. They, they have to say, yeah, look, I'm, I'm struggling with this too. You got, if, you're, if you're trying to put on a face you know, and, and say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm strong, this is not an issue for me, that's going to be a disaster because there'll be no authenticity at all in the culture then. And uh, one of the things, you mentioned a few of those principles, um, Follow the fear is a critical principle in improv. That, that's the idea that when, uh, you know, if you and I are up on stage and, you know, you, you give me an initiation, letting me know where we are, you know, we're mind shaft or something. Based on that, every person who's going to be up there on stage with you, every single person listening to this, they'll have three or four or five ideas right away. And I'm sure a lot of people are saying, no, that's not me. I'm not creative. I don't have this. Yes, you're having those ideas. What happens is your inner critic shuts those down. It's, it will say before that even becomes an idea, it says that's a stupid idea. You'll tell yourself that and then you'll, you'll end up with nothing. And the follow the fear concept 
it, there is a concept of you got to silence your inner critic. You know, you got to trust yourself and say, look, I'm going to, I'm going to trust that this stuff is going to be good. The follow the fear idea is that these four or five ideas that come to you, these options for me to respond to you, the one that scares me the most is the one that I have the obligation to pursue. There, there is a founder of long form improv, the Herald, a guy named um, Del Close, who, who said that. And you, that's because that idea, it scares you so much because it means it's, it, it's new frontier. You know, it's something you haven't explored before. And that's why it scares you because it's uncomfortable. However, because it, it's new frontier is going to yield the richest outcome for sure. So that's, that's definitely part of it. I think, I think executives need to embrace that and say, all right, I, I know I'm going to do some things that scare me. And through leading by example, others will follow. And, and that's where, you know, same thing with innovation, you know, creativity, all those things. You, you have to let people feel emotionally safe in taking risk. And when, when CEOs do that, other people can trust that, okay, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a risk too. You gave me a quote from William Howard Taft, who is a guy that's routinely quoted uh, by comedians, I know, for, <laughs> for <laughs> he said, uh, don't write so that you can be understood, write so that you can't be misunderstood. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Comedy, so, so that, uh, that connects with uh, stand-up comedy. The, the thing about a stand-up comedian is you have to write so you can't be misunderstood. You, you know, a, a, a close synonym will not get a laugh for you. It has to be the exact idea. And, and here's the thing. When you, when you get up there and, and you understand what silence feels like, okay, it's not fun. It is not fun. And it hurts. And you learn pretty quickly. I, I, I don't want to hear that anymore. I don't want to hear the silence. I want to make sure people laugh and I want, I want to make sure I get my idea across. And it really sharpens your thinking. And you move, you move from here's what I want to say to here's what the audience will hear. This is what they're going to understand. And so you, you become a very different writer that way. And you're always thinking about the audience and it just, it, you become a heck of a lot more compassionate and you really try to anticipate what might be there, what barriers could be in the audience that might get in the way of communication, you know, that they might be, you know, like if, if let's say if it, you know, if something was, you were, you had a show right after a, whatever the stock market crashed, you know, that's going to be, everybody's going to be worried about their retirement or the economy. And so you need to take that on right at the top. You got you to lampoon that. And in a way where you let everybody realize, you know what, we've gotten through this before. We're going to get through this again. So it's, it, that's what, to me, that's what stand-up comedy really teaches. I think, all, I think everybody should take a stand-up comedy class, it, particularly if you're a communicator or a marketer, because you really, it, man, it hones you in on making sure you write in a way that you cannot be misunderstood. That's great advice. That's really good advice. You know, I did my undergrad work at UC Berkeley in languages, which is why I had to take physics classes because it was UC Berkeley. <laughs> so we did a lot of quantum mechanics and that kind of thing. I'm pretty sure that the mechanics of comedy is significantly more complex than quantum mechanics. Mm. You know, I don't know that Einstein was particularly funny, but I understand why, because it was a lot harder than what he was doing. Talk to me a little bit about the mechanics of comedy. I mean, this idea of 
I think I'm going to write a joke this afternoon is right up there to me with, yeah. I think I'm going to grow some gills and jump in the lake this afternoon. You know, it just, it, <laughs> it doesn't work. See, both can be done this afternoon. And I'm going to show you how. The gills. We'll start with the gills. So the if you think of uh, vector physics, it's hard to explain over radio, but, you know, the setup, your setup is a, think of that as a vector, you know, moving in a, in, in a certain direction, moving forward, directly forward. That's your setup. And you're assuming that, okay, the conclusion of this idea is going to continue in the same vector. It's going to continue to go in that straight line. Um, but the idea, then you need to write a punchline that violently interrupts that vector. So if you want to think of a vector like coming straight down from the top, you know, and crushing this vector that's going horizontally along the, uh, the X axis, right? Then that's what, that's what a punchline is. It's, it's a violent interruption. And when it, when it hits that idea and stops your mind's uh, direction of thinking, there's kind of no place for your mind to go. You're trapped. It's that idea is trapped and it just has to explode in laughter. That that's kind of the thinking around how these, uh, the, you know, the mechanics of it work. So, and it, and it's helpful to think about that visually as you're writing a, a setup and a punchline, you know, because you want to get, you want to get the mind, you want to get people nodding. Oh yeah. I know what he's talking about. Like the classic, I, we probably can't use this. <laughs> you know, the classic uh, take my wife, Okay, I, we're going to use it. You know, take my wife is a setup. And, and we think, oh, okay, yeah, he's got about to give us an example. And then he says, please, you know, please pleading with you. All right. And just to be clear, the wife could be saying that about the husband. Take my husband, please. That's what I'm talking about, that interruption. You know, that, that kind of violent interruption of like, oh, my, you know, you just, it just shocks you and interrupts you. And you just, you end up laughing because you're, you're kind of trapped with where you're, pattern of thought was going that's kind of rodney dangerfield writ large right i mean that that was oh. his his shtick. yes exactly yes he did that all the time yes that was great yes that's right and you um you know that's an important point that, that's when you're you know you have to think about in the setup if you give if you don't give enough context in the setup of course the joke's not going to work because people don't know what you're talking about and it, but if you give too much if you give just a little, you know, one word more in the setup, you're going to, you know, you're going to telegraph the joke and people are going to get it right away. They're going to beat you to it. So that, that's another thing in communication. You learn to be incredibly efficient. You have to be very economical. It, when I was writing at Letterman, you know, the, Dave liked his headline jokes for the monologue. They were all around 20, 25 words, you know, and that's a lot to get a concept across about you know, whatever a headline is and then a punch, you know, then introduce something completely different as a punchline. But I'll, I'll never forget Bill Chef was the writer I was writing for submitting to. And he, he would get so thrilled if you were able to cut a word out of your joke. If you'd go from 25 words to 24, he, he would be so excited about that. And it's just, it gave me a new appre appreciation, you know, for, uh, for economy. So let me ask you this. Where do the ideas come from? And I, and I wonder if there's a linkage here to innovation, to, you know, creative mm. leadership, to good communications, that kind of thing. I mean, how do you, how do you come up with the ideas that ultimately lead to the creation of a joke that becomes part of a monologue or, or part of a program or whatever it may be? Yeah. Well, first of all, for the, 
you you're on an, uh, there's a very important point that you're that you're bringing up is you have to create this environment of play you know you really have to get people into a into a playful mode to be creative and it's different now because we're all working at home but it's hard to create that in a cubicle you know it's it's uh it's hard to get people you know they're they're more focused on task and project planning and they're also there's also a lot of fear i don't want to do anything wrong and that's key and, and and working on comedy even just comedy exercises or improv exercises just for fun i mean executives really move into that playful mode very quickly nothing gets the mind in a playful mode faster than humor and that's that's one of the powerful reasons of, of having more humor in the office for sure um Wait, now what's the rest of the question? I forgot. Well, actually, I'm going to let me shift gears on you just a little bit. I mean, not radically, but I've seen you in front of many, many audiences. I've seen you in front of corporate audiences and conferences and, you know, the, the same kind of things I tend to speak at, although I'm not a comedian, obviously. Let me ask you this. What does the humor bring to a corporate conference? In other words, uh, l- let me presage this with a with an observation. What I love about your presentations when you get up on stage and bring people to laughter is there's something much more going on there than just laughing at a joke. You're actually making them look at themselves. You're making them learn. You're making them consider things in ways they may not have considered them before. And I don't know how much of that is deliberate or if it's just the organic natural outcome of doing what you do for a living. Tell me about that. Oh, that's interesting. It I, I try to have that intention, but I do think it's quite organic. I think, I think um, that's, that's probably where my, you know, my comedic voice finds its home is just the absurdity of the corporate world. Oh my gosh, Steve. I, I'm thinking of a story you told me when you worked for the phone company about people were stealing the, the, the mice, the mouse from the computer and it cost like 80 bucks. So what they did is, <laughs> will you tell that story? <laughs> <laughs> they had they had innovated to steal a word. They had innovated. They'd given they'd given everybody wireless mice because it was new and cool, and you know you could put it on the book, or you could put it over here, or you could put it on the mouse, you know, wherever you wanted to. But they were so cool that people were stealing them and taking them home. And so they they brought in a company to attach stainless steel cables to the mice and then the other end to the desktop. So they effectively turned these $80 mice into $4 PS2 mice, corded, corded mice. I mean, I, I actually wrote a letter to Scott Adams, who at the time was writing Dilbert, uh, to say, I think this even defies your ability yeah. to make it <laughs> to make, to make right. something out of it. That's right. I well, I think so. I think a comedian will sit there in in a in a situation like that in the office and just well, everybody thinks it's absurd, but a comedian will ponder that a little longer and find something productive there and saying, "Okay, I'm going to make a joke out of this." Yes, it's absurd, but let's say something about it. You know, let's 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 say something that that's meaningful here. So, and I do think that's, uh, we're, we're connecting to an earlier question. I think always looking at a pain point, you know, wh- where is the pain in the organization and, and looking for behavior that needs to change. Like I, I and, and doing humor around that. And so a lot of that, when I'd go to a conference, 
I'll speak to the people beforehand. I'll understand what are the challenges, you know, what's on people's minds and what, what are they afraid of this coming year? What's creating the anxiety. And that's always a wonderful way to just flip things on their head and have people look at them in a new way. And also laugh about the things that are creating anxiety. And I, man, I'm, I'm all for, I've struggled with anxiety and I'm all for trying to reduce that. And I think not just getting people to laugh, but getting people to laugh about what they get anxious around diffuses that. And they're able to look at it and reframe it a different way. A lot of humor, it comes at uh, just the absurdity and and pretense that I see in the corporate world. And I've I've done a bit on, you know, committees and how counterproductive committees can be. And like, for one thing, I, I used to talk about, I used to, you know, put a slide up there, committee, and I said, look, let me, let me just share with you, you know, if you're new to a committee, what the roles are here. And then I'd show, okay, look, you got a, you got a, you know, a, a timekeeper, a scribe, and a, a gatekeeper, timekeeper, a scribe, and a scapegoat. And, you know, just point at one of those roles. And everybody loved that because they knew. They, they knew they'd been in a community meeting. And when you come in the committee meeting with a creative idea, you know, the, I, you, you would think you're going to leave with a better idea. But unfortunately, what happens so often is people are just, uh, you know, their emotions take over and there's fear that comes up. And they either try to, you know, the, the hidden agenda becomes, hey, look, let's, let's kind of mitigate risk. You know, um, let me take credit for this somehow, you, you know, or let's, let's blame somebody for when it goes south. Let's find somebody to blame. And sadly, I've seen that happen so often. And, and I think unless you start calling that out, and humor is, is the mechanism that allows you to call it out, you know, versus just, you know, you can, you can, you make, you bring some levity. So people are laughing and they can, it's palatable a little bit, but when you start calling that stuff out, people, people start to change. They're like, okay, I don't want to be that idiot that he was talking about in the committee. You know, I, for years have said that I could probably get grant money to study the humor that people post on cubicle walls as an indicator of the temperature in the corporation at that moment in time. You know, if the, if the humor is really sarcastic and pointed and kind of negative, there's a reason for that. If it's upbeat, and I don't mean to the point of those god-awful posters that people put up, you know, fly with the eagles kind of right. stuff, but, but you yeah. know, the, just kind of the organic humor that people... I, for example, one of my favorite, one of my absolute favorite corporate jokes says that, you know, a camel is a horse designed by a committee, right? And, and how yes. very true that is, right? Because we've, we've all seen exactly what happens. Let me ask you this. I'm going to ask you an off-the-wall question. I'm just curious what you think about this. Should corporations have a chief humor officer? Oh, I think that's a great idea. I love that idea. Absolutely. What does that look like? Yes. I mean, if you, if you had that so, job, what would you do? You know, the, the first thing I would do, is, and, and we, when I was at IBM, like back in, two, well, when social media was just starting, starting to happen, we had, uh, you know, you have 400,000 employees and everybody, these are all technical people. They're very comfortable getting out on Twitter and whatnot and, and speaking. We had to figure out, okay, how are we going to manage this? You know, so we, we wrote these social media guidelines. It, it was just like four, four or five pages. And we went and we, 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 we tapped into all of the, the experts, people who actually knew what they were doing, the people who were tweeting already. We talked to HR, we talked to legal, you know, and, and we just said, listen, we're just going to put some guidelines together. These are just some guardrails on what we're saying. You know, stay away from politics and religion. Just try to avoid that if you're going to represent yourself as an IBMer on Facebook. 
and you know, just some simple things like that. And once people understood, here's, here's what I can do. Here's what I can't do, man. Our, our, our activation just blew up. People were, were ready to get involved. They felt safe going out and being part of the, the conversation. So I'd want to do something just like that as a chief humor officer. People are afraid to joke because they think they're going to offend somebody. I, I'd do the same thing. I'd say, listen, do not be very clear that your humor cannot be misunderstood as an attack on a certain group of people or a personal characteristic. You know, if, there, if there's behavior that we need to change as a culture, then that's fair game. You know, if there's, let's look at our customers' problems, do humor around that. If there are things that need to change, we need to get rid of the $80 wire that's holding down the mouse, you know, ridiculous things like that, then let's make fun of that. So we say, all right, there's a problem. Let's address it. Uh, that's what I would do as a chief humor officer is kind of let people feel safe on, on what they can joke about. And then some of it, of course, would be education. You know, here's how you write a joke. Here's how you use irony. Here's how you use hyperbole some things like that. And then I'd, I'd put on improv classes. So people would learn to silence their inner critic and really open up. And another part of improv, it's, it's so much of it's about encouraging. You mentioned earlier, support your partner. Man, that's a, that's a critical role. When you go out on stage with somebody else, your, your entire intention needs to be about making my partner look good. And once you take that focus off of yourself, it, it just frees you from being anxious or having stage fright or all of that because I'm, I'm just here to serve the scene and make my partner look good. And if we thought more like that, if we, if we acted more like that in the corporate world, everything would change. You know, at the risk of sounding like I'm giving you a shameless plug, I want to give you a shameless plug that... I like you nothing know, you, more funny, <laughs> <Dr. Shepard. laughs> you, you are very good at what you do, but of course you're crippled by the fact that you also have a pretty sublime understanding of technology, which disqualifies mm. you for any real jobs, obviously, you know, <laughs> out there. Uh, is there, is there anything else, Tim, that, that you want to tell our audience? Is there anything we haven't talked about that you think is important? Yeah, I, I would say, I, I think right now is a, is a time where we need more compassion. You know, we need to we need to spend more time focusing and understanding on each other. And I'm talking about our colleagues, you know, people at work and be there to listen, you know, and, and just just be an ear for somebody to talk. And, and we don't have to say anything. You know, we don't have to say anything. We can just listen. So much of it's about just showing up for one another. I got a good buddy of mine and he texted me and let me know, hey, man, my, my daughter's uh, we're at the ER. Uh, my daughter. <laughs> was on the swing and ran, crashed right into it, you know, did a flip around the swing and hit a tree. And, you know, they're doing an MRI, blah, blah, blah. You know, I texted him 10 minutes later and I said, Rich, um, I'm here in the waiting room now in the ER. If you got time to come out and say hi, great. I'd love to take the kids to go get a milkshake. The other kids, you know, there was a time where I'd be worried about, am I going to say the right thing? And I don't, I don't care about that. I don't worry about saying anything. I just show, it's just being there for somebody, you know? And I, I, I took the kids and we went and got milkshakes and we had a blast and they got away from the stress and mom and dad were able to talk and just be there and pay all the attention on, on the girl who was injured. And I didn't say a word. We need to do more stuff like that. Just show up for people and have compassion and so that's humor can be part of that. It doesn't have to be, but I, I do think some of these skills you mentioned, some of the principles you mentioned in improv, like support your partner, that's what it's all about. We really, we really got to take care of each other in the workplace. 
you know, and some of that is, it's just simply showing up and just sitting with somebody. So Tim, where do people go to find out more about Tim? I have a website that probably needs to be updated, but it's just my name, T-I-M and washer like Maytag and have some information there. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook, uh, LinkedIn as well. My friend, Tim Washer. Thank you, Tim, for spending time with us today. Oh, this was great, Steve. Thank you so much for the invite. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode.